Welcome to Backyard Philosophy, a podcast where a couple friends grab some cold ones, sit around the fire, and talk about science, philosophy, and history. Crack one open, sit back, and get a good laugh as we discuss everything from automation to why the meaning of life is 42. Today we're going to talk about two things that breed anti-government sentiment, taxes and whiskey. But before we get there, Mike, how are you doing and what are you drinking? I'm doing fantastic and I'm drinking some coffee with some Jim Bean in it. I think very appropriate for what we're going to be talking about, Nick. What about you? What are you drinking? How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm also drinking coffee and Jim Bean. It's like we're friends or something. I, I had to be drinking whiskey. I'm not going to do a podcast on the Whiskey Rebellion and not drink whiskey. So that's what we're talking about today? Yep. As Hamilton called it, the Whiskey Rebellion. He simplified this issue down to a single drink, but there's, as always, much more to it than that. This story takes place seven years after the Revolutionary War ended. Washington was president. The United States was badly in debt. They had to pay foreign countries who helped them. They had to pay their own army. The federal government took over states' debts. Alexander Hamilton was kind of the one behind that. He wanted federal government to take over the states' debts so that it would unite the country. It also kind of created some division because some of the southern states had already paid off their debts, and now they had to pay taxes to the federal government to pay off the northern states' debts. It's kind of beside the point. So... Some of the Hamilton's opposition, such as Jefferson, who we talked about in the election of 1800, the Federalist, uh, the Anti-Federalist, were opposed to taking over this debt, but they made a deal that brought the capital of the United States from Philadelphia to D.C. So the army didn't, like I said, the United States is in debt, so they didn't have enough money to pay the army that had just fought for their independence. They essentially gave them IOUs. The officers were paid, but most of the soldiers were, were given some form of IOUs. I don't know about you, Nick, but soldiers who were just experienced in fighting a war that is owed money might be something you want to settle right away. Yeah, but the United States was a couple million dollars in debt for that time. So I think <sighs> it would be the equivalent of like $1.3 trillion in our money of how much debt we had. Holy crap. So we didn't start out with a clean state. <laughs> So we needed a, we, the United States, the federal government specifically, needed a tax. They needed an income to help pay off these debts. So they decided to tax whiskey. Now whiskey, it's, keep in mind, it's not uncommon for governments to levy these taxes. They're called sin taxes. We know them predominantly when they talk about cigarette taxes. But many countries in the world have these taxes on alcohol. So it was seen as a vice, right? So you're essentially paying for, if you have enough money to drink whiskey, government gets some of that. So it's not a straight tax on everyone. It could be seen as if you wanted to pay the tax, you could when you drink whiskey. So it wasn't for on anyone is the way Hamilton thought it would be, that people would be against it. And at this time, the United States is still a very religious country. There's still many Puritans and, and Quakers. So levying a tax on a sin would be pretty popular. And it was a semi-popular tax on the East Coast. This would be the first tax on the United States domestic product. And whiskey had just recently passed rum as the drink of choice in the United States. All I have to say makes me proud to be American that, granted, it's taxation, but it's not taxation without representation, but the first thing, first product tax in America is whiskey. God bless America. But bad for taxes, but at least it was whiskey. Yep. And uh, so Hamilton, like you said, it was a syntax, so he thought the worst case scenario is that people drink less whiskey, which would make for a more polite society. Hamilton had other objectives, and we kind of saw some of that in the election of 1800 podcast. He really wanted a federal bank. He wanted to expand the powers of the federal government, and he thought he would help unite the country by creating a system of federal tax collectors and establishing a federal bank. Hamilton believed that the best way to keep the government running was to align it with man's interest. And by man's interest, I mean money. Hamilton wanted to make it so the government was intertwined in business, specifically specifically with the wealthy business owners, because then the rich would ensure that the government stayed afloat because they had a hand in it. Kind of sounds dirty to me, but... I mean, it's politics, so... I can see... It's politics. I can see where he's coming from. 
at the time, you know, these people <laughs> created an entirely new system of government. They we didn't really have a playbook on this. Um, mostly, most of the founding fathers read collections from the Roman Empire is mostly where this information was from. But if this was to work, they needed this country to work and stay afloat. After the Articles of Confederation fell through, we needed some kind of uniting factor, and we needed to keep this country floating. Otherwise, we would dissolve and just become a part of another country. Just go from being ruled by England to France or Spain, some other power. So Hamilton thought that this was the best way to keep the country afloat, ally it with the rich. I, I'll be honest with you. I cannot see America ever going down the avenue of being ruled by another country. That sounds so taboo and foreign to me, and I'm very happy it didn't happen that way. And if I may, Nick, I want everyone to realize we were considered rebels fighting against, at the time, the most powerful country in the world and trying to set up a system of government that has never been made before. Nick, you hit the nail on the head with no rule book. This was make up as you go and try to find solutions as they kept popping up. Yeah, and so, like you said, each of these people thought what they were doing was the right way to do it, but like you said, <laughs> we talked about, there was no, like, there's no playbook. We were writing the playbook, which is why the United States has helped so many other countries form their own governments, write their own constitutions, because, well, we, we now have a playbook. They're learning from our mistakes and our successes. So, Washington was unsure of the whiskey tax. He wanted to know what the people thought of it, and he visited government officials in the West, which was an ordeal. At this time, Washington was pretty old. Riding his horse around his own uh, Mount Vernon was becoming a challenge. He would very rarely ride in a ceremonial style just because it hurt his back so much. So it was a lot to him to go visit these government officials. And being the government officials they are, they said no problem and that they supported it. Well, they didn't really talk to their people, I guess, because the Western territories and the Western people really didn't appreciate the whiskey tax. But I think what happened is it's just government officials eager to please George Washington. I mean, what kind of balls? You got to have some kind of balls to say no to George Washington. I'll, I'll be honest, that, that'd be hard to do even during, during this era. You know, like, you, uh, you're literally the father of our country, and you led us through some dark times into a golden age. How, yeah, you're, uh, I'm gonna help you out wherever I can. Yeah, so the eastern parts of the new country were for the whiskey tax, and I'll explain why. So how the tax works is that as your production moves up, after a certain amount of gallons, the tax drops. So you're incentivized to produce in larger quantities. Smaller distillers were punished. Domestic whiskey was taxed at nine cents per gallon, but once you moved up to a large-scale production, a bigger distillery was taxed at six cents per gallon. So the bigger distillers were able to lower their tax rate, which could effectively use this new tax to force the smaller distillers out of business. Nick, this might sound like a dumb question. So the taxation isn't per bottle for the customer to buy, it's for the breweries? Yes, so it's based on production. So however many gallons, you pay six cents or nine cents per gallon based on production. Now, you can then pass that tax on to the people who buy it, but that's what you have to pay. Okay, I, I get understand what what's happening now. We didn't have, you know, a computer system where that automatically adds tax to all your purchases. The easiest way to do it is to go straight to the source of production and then pay it there. And then it can be recouped later as it goes out to buy. Makes complete sense to me. You always follow the numbers and ledgers are both a blessing and a damnation. Yeah, to me, for taxes and regulations like this, a big red flag is when the big distillers or big companies want it, want more regulation on their industry. It's usually because it's going to push the smaller distillers, the competition, out of the market. Yeah, it, it should usually be vice versa. Another cost was distillers had to pay to register their stills, which doesn't seem like too bad, but failure to register would mean the need to appear in federal court. Well, the federal court was in Philadelphia. If you lived in the backcountry of Tennessee or Pennsylvania, obviously Tennessee had a different federal court, but if you lived anywhere back there, you'd have to cross the Appalachians to appear in court. So that was one of the as one of the sticking points that they didn't like. They were forced to travel. And this is at a time when you couldn't, there was no roads. We didn't have any roads to the mountains. So you actually had to go up and over the mountains, right? Or a pass or something. 
So that's a couple days if you have a horse, more if you don't, and you have to leave your crops, leave your family. The West was also plagued with Indians at this time, so then your family's not protected. The cost of registering the stills was also more than most Western farmers could afford. Yeah, that seems very unfair to make a person travel hundreds, if not thousands of miles to do a court system. It seems like, again, it seems no representation, which is something we just kind of fought for. Exactly. And this is at a time in the United States when it was not uncommon for people to never leave their county. So traveling way out across multiple counties is an ordeal. I would say that still today. How many people live and die in the same area that they were raised in? So back then, I imagine that's even higher numbers. Yep. So they felt unfair for that reason, because they were taxed at a higher rate because it was predominantly small stills, and that they felt they were being unfairly targeted. So let's talk about who lived in these Western territories. The Western territories, they were a part of states, but they acted more like territories. Um, I don't quite know what to call uh, just the Western counties, I guess. They're predominantly poor farmers. Yeah, right. That's the cost of getting goods out there and the cost of transporting goods back didn't leave them much for personal finance. Some of these people would earn $20 a year and the whiskey tax would be, if they paid it, would be about $6 for the year. Oh God, more than a quarter of your entire yearly salary. Yeah, many of these were veterans. These veteran, these Western territories where, where the veterans lived were already upset at the government because they had not been paid for their service properly. And then the government turns around and asks for money. Yeah, that'd make me a little salty. Like we said, the Western territories were also upset because at this time we were still at war with different Indian tribes. Not an actual war, more skirmishes that were taking place, but they weren't being kept safe from the Indian threat living on the edge of their society, as well as farming far from the city had challenges, especially in a time before the internal combustion engine. The movement of goods would cost a lot of money. It'd cost about the same amount to get all your grain to the city as it would the transportation cost to get it to the city. So you would probably lose money. So Nick, you're telling me there's another divide between urban and rural? It might be the theme for this year. I don't know. <laughs> so whiskey turned out to be a cheaper option for turning your goods into something you could sell. You could turn 1,200 pounds of grain. That could be turned into 20 gallons of whiskey. That seems a lot easier to transport. And whiskey make my baby feel a little frisky. Sure does. So whiskey... <laughs> was essentially used as a form of currency out there. People were paid in whiskey. The military paid, or it was used as rations still. You know, we know that most navies used to give rum rations to their sailors, but in the United States, we gave a ration of whiskey to the troops just because that was the more popular drink. Um, there wasn't a lot of actual money. Like I said, that $20 is, of income is an estimate because they didn't really have real money out there. It was primarily a barter economy. At this point, the dollar wasn't really a thing. There was still states had their own currency. They were trying to convert it into a one federal currency, but the federal currency was so in debt that states' own currency would be worth more. So it's just easier just to barter. And it's not like you're really going to too many different stores and taverns and stuff like that. It's mostly trade. So it didn't really make sense. You probably know all your neighbors. Yeah. As such, because they didn't have this currency... They didn't really have a currency to pay for the whiskey tax. So another grievance, talking about transportation and getting that however much grain or whiskey to the consumer, there was a cheaper option, flowing your goods down the Mississippi. But that was under the control of Spain. United States citizens couldn't use that. Why wasn't it not on control of the French? Well, the France, French had kind of the eastern stuff, but the southern stuff was under control of Spain, where it came out into the Gulf. So you could get it most of the way down, but then when it got down to the bottom... I did not know that. I figured with New Orleans and the Louisiana Purchase, I figured that would be all French territory. Granted, I know like Spain owned Florida and I believe Georgia. Like I knew it like that, but I thought by this point in history, it was either American or French. That's exactly what I thought, which is why I had to double check because I was like, wait, I'm pretty sure they mean France. But apparently Spain controlled the waterways, even though France controlled the territory or something like that. It had to go essentially through both countries and neither of whom were France more friendly to the United States at the time. Well, until we didn't really help them in their revolution as much. But so that was not an option open to these, these citizens of the United States, which is why, well, well, I won't get there yet. Um, so the solution to this 
problem of not being able to transport their goods was to distill it into whiskey, became cheaper to transport, it became the new dollar. They could, like I said, pay people in whiskey, easier to transport, it's a barter economy. It also cost less because there was so much of it. So, you know, it was pretty common and most people drank whiskey. You know, it's even if you yourself didn't drink whiskey, you could still use the whiskey in trades to barter, like we said. So many of the Western territories or counties were upset, specifically four counties in Western Pennsylvania where most of this took place. Allegheny County, Westmoreland County, Fayetteville, and Washington County. Many of these Western territories started organizing, and they sent delegates to show their side of the tax at a convention in Philadelphia. This was the first convention for the Whiskey Rebellion. Well, what will become the Whiskey Rebellion. They came with a list of grievances that they were going to present to the Congress. They're going to compile a list of grievances that would then be presented. William Brackenridge was one of the delegates. He was a moderate. This convention was primarily attended by the moderate viewpoint. These people wanted to be remain a part of the United States, they just felt that this was an unfair tax. Like you said, Mike, all these soldiers who had just fought a war for taxation without representation really felt like they were not being represented right now. Yeah, that, God, I can't imagine how angry that, that would make me. So William Finley, he was a Western congressman at the time. He did his best, but like you said, Hamilton, who is in Washington's cabinet, really wanted this tax. They were able to remove one cent from the tax. Now, one cent out of nine is a step but it didn't address the entire other list of grievances, and the moderates were happy because they did something, there was no violence, but most of the people weren't really happy with this. The one cent reduction did little to appease most of these people. And once the moderates came back, kind of defeated, some of the more radical elements in these western counties started to call for leaving the new union, possibly joining with Spain so that they could sell goods down the Mississippi. We don't want that to happen. Nope, gotta keep the union intact. So Washington, or the federal government started sending out tax collectors. Well, like we said, Mike, everyone, or a lot of the people out west, had just finished a guerrilla war campaign against the largest army on the world, and one of the main grievances was taxes. They knew all sorts of ways to avoid paying taxes, intimidating tax collectors. On the first attack, or the first conflict, on September 11th, 1791, the first tax collector was tarred and feathered. Oof! Oof! Yep, the court sent out warrants to the men who tarred the tax collector, and that man was subsequently tarred and feathered. That's brutal. For those who don't know what tarred and feathered is, uh, it's not like the Looney Tunes, what you imagine. It's hot tar poured on your skin, and then usually chicken feathers thrown on you, and then you, like, run out of town. Many people die because of the burns from the tar. The, these two men lived, but it took them weeks of scrubbing with salt and different things to get the tar and feather off, and there was they became a little disfigured because of the burning, and yeah, it's it's not, uh, like you said, Mike, it's not the Looney Tune tar and feathering. This is a violent act. Jesus. Other times, or another place, men broke into a tax collector's office and forced him to surrender his position at gunpoint and draw up a letter of resignation. People were not uh, responding well to this tax. <laughs> That's putting it lightly. A year went by, and the majority of taxes went uncollected. Uh... Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, Kentucky, a lot of the taxes in those states were not collected just because of the predominantly frontier aspect of some of those states, which is surprising that Pennsylvania, where most of this takes place, a lot of taxes were collected, but mostly on the eastern side of the Appalachians. Mountains make a big difference, I, I imagine. Well, Mike, what do you know about, is the government okay with just letting people not pay taxes? Oh, sure. You write a nice letter to the IRS. Of course, let your taxes go away. Come on, Nick. What kind of question is that? Taxes, the only thing, the only thing that is actually going to happen in this world is death and taxes. So the government, seeing all this, is getting more and more upset that, one, they're facing rebellion, almost open rebellion, as the Westerners started erecting liberty poles. And these liberty poles were modeled after the liberty trees that the birth of the American Revolution began under. Yes, Mike, it's all about trees. Fudge. And these polls basically just marked as a meeting spot for people to come and talk about their issues. But they were plastered with slogans like people against the tax and no, re no 
taxation without representation. I mean, these some of these were probably the same signs that were used not too long ago. <laughs> they just brushed, brushed off the dust and put them back up. Yep, so they continued to harass tax collectors using tactics learned from the Revolutionary War. One of the hot spots of resistance was from the Mingo Creek area of Pennsylvania, mostly coming from a church in the area. Hamilton wanted to advance a federal power, and he was itching for a chance to use the national military that he wanted to raise. Like I said, Hamilton wanted to expand the, fe- the power of the federal government, seeing as a strong federal influence would be one way to keep order, keep everyone together, and unite the country. In August of 1792, a second convention was convened to compile another list of Western grievances, or just kind of to figure out where do we go from here. The first convention had delegates who were chosen by the people. They were elected and sent a more orderly delegation. This convention, it was unclear of how do we decide if so-and-so, who is a delegate, who isn't a delegate, who is representing who. This was predominantly radicals that attended this convention. Like I said, many members of the Mingo Creek, some people call them the Mingo Creek Group, Association, Gang, but many members of the Mingo Creek Church were here. William Brackenridge, one of the moderates from the last convention, did not attend because he did not agree with some of the ideals that these people wanted. They talked just about leaving the Union, like we said, joining a different power. to We couldn't, these people couldn't just leave the United States and be free. They would need protection from the armies of the United States, which would have to rely on another power to do that. Hamilton, yep. I'll have to I'll have to say, Nick, every time you kept saying Mingo, for some reason in my mind, I think I kept thinking of Blazing Saddles and Mongo, like with the Mongo and part of the gang. I don't know why. I just, for some reason, it was stuck in my head. Sorry, a little off topic there. Mongo-like candy. <laughs> <laughs> Mongo like no taxation without representation. Yep. So Hamilton, hearing about this second convention, was upset that there was this much opposition to his new tax that he thought would unite the country. And he wanted members of the second convention arrested. That's a strong opinion on that if someone doesn't like your idea. Keep in mind, the Bill of Rights was in place. Like, we were a few years... I mean, the ink on the Bill of Rights was still dry, and the government's already looking for a reason to squash the right to assemble. Oh, God, that's that's scary to think about. Hamilton wanted to get an idea of what was going on west of the Appalachians after hearing about this, so he sent George Clymer. This is probably one of the worst people to send. So this guy, he thought he was a big deal. He traveled in disguise because he thought people would recognize him. And then everyone, obviously sensing that there's something off with this man, saw through this guy's, figured he was a spy from the East, which further drove a division. Upon revealing to people who he was, he got upset when people did not know who he was. <laughs> he was afraid to travel anywhere outside of town, just not for that anything had been done to him, just because there was such tension. And it's probably smart. He stayed in town and traveling in disguise you know, go into the wrong area, they probably would have done something to him. So he stayed in town, but he sent exaggerated reports to Hamilton, such a, that kind of blew everything out of the proportion, out of the water. Hamilton, already itchy to send in federal troops, he essentially said that the cause was further out of control because the he said that the corruption ran all the way up because a local judge would not give the names of the rebels to Clymer. Well, this local judge, he really, he was on the side of the federal government. He wanted to, he wanted these people to pay their whiskey tax and stuff. But being from the Western territories, more Jeffersonian, he didn't like the overreach of the federal government. So he said, well, you have to get a warrant. You need to go through the proper channels. And this angered Clymer, who then told Hamilton that the corruption runs all the way up, the judges are compromised, So we, which led to the point of that we can't hold these trials here even if we do make it so that state courts can decide some of these uh, warrants and issues because that they've been compromised. Just because Clymer was asking the judge to go around the laws that are already in place. Uh, that is so dirty. That just... So dirty. Yeah, the judge was just a state rights supporter and did not want to give in to the larger federal government. Even though he was against the rebels, he was just following the law. The rebels, understandably, were upset that the government was sending spies. Like I said, if George Clymer had just gone as George Clymer instead of wearing disguises and giving fake names, and then further letting people know who he was and upset that no one knew who he was, furthered the distrust between both sides. Yeah, they definitely sent the wrong person for that (laughs) diplomatic uh, scenario. Yeah. So Hamilton and Washington published a declaration denouncing the resistance, 
mostly fueled by climbers' articles, as well as, at this time, the French Revolution was kind of kicking off, and Americans began to form societies similar to what was being done in France. Hamilton and Washington saw these societies, which were, I guess, like an enlightened version of a militia. It's not a, not a radical military group. It's more just people who have a different way of thinking, but it could be seen, and it was the start of the French Revolution, kind of kicked off by these different societies with different points of views. So the federal government thought that these societies were bringing French resistance thoughts, uh, ill feelings toward the government, aristocracy, into the United States. So they thought, we need to crush this rebellion before these societies begin to take on, see these rebels, if you want to call them that, as the traitors. So they published a declaration denouncing the resistance, and they used pretty strong terms that Clymer had sent. They made it seem if it like it was kind of a, like a, infiltrated by a foreign government, like the French were kind of doing this to us. And so they kind of made it almost an us versus them instead of all of Americans, right? It's a good PR move, but... Blame someone else. <laughs> yeah. Didn't do anything to quell the distrust between the sides. So this is going on two years. Again, most of the taxes haven't been collected. Hamilton reached out to a wealthy landowner in the western counties, General John Neville. He lived out west, and he was going. To, he wanted him to help collect the taxes. This is kind of a conflict of interest because whiskey was still a ration given to soldiers regularly, but the government could only purchase whiskey from producers who had paid their taxes. Conveniently, Neville was one of those producers of a large still who could afford to pay to register their still and pay their taxes. Now, Neville and a few other large landowners were benefiting from being one of the few producers in the area who could supply the U.S. military. Well, that's not conflict of interest at all there, Nick. This may be the beginning of the military-industrial complex, Mike. <laughs> Hamilton used these large landowners to essentially force people to comply because the government wouldn't give them any business. They then shifted their production to these larger businesses. So these larger businesses who paid their taxes benefited, and then, then they were able to kind of push some people out of the business, right? So Neville, benefiting from being one of the few producers in the area who could sell his whiskey to the military, he was tasked to aid in the collection of taxes by use of warrants. General Neville, not being a, a complete idiot, sensed the inherent danger and figured that it'd be easier to send someone else to do the collection. He turned to one of his subordinates, who then turned to someone else to conduct the tax collection business. Um, Neville was still at the head of it, and he attempted to rent an office to conduct the tax collection business in, but all the business owners turned him away due to threats from the opposition who were opposed to the whiskey tax. Anywhere he tried to go, anything he tried to do, he was met with resistance. So you're telling me that the people with guns who tarn feather and would force people to resign at gunpoint were effective with their threats? Huh, who would have thought? Yeah, and so they were not, not everyone in the area was violently opposed to the whiskey tax. Most people just didn't want to pay it. So even the people who had no part in it were fearful of the threat from these more violent groups. So he found it hard to rent from places, but he did eventually find a place and... The owner let him set up an office there. They didn't. He didn't think he was going to be conducting business there or having people come in, just that this was a place where he could have his books, do paperwork, stuff like that. Neville put up a sign saying, come and see me about the whiskey tax at this address. The building owner ran back there to confront an angry mob ready to burn down <laughs> his building, threw, ne threw Neville out because that was not part of the agreement, and so he kind of had nowhere to go. Um, the Mingo Creek Association was one of those people, one of these groups giving threats, and another unnamed person, Tom the Tinker, would also give threats. Now, Tom the Tinker, who we still don't know who it was to this day, we kind of, there's a few ideas of who it could be, but again, we still don't know who it was. Okay, so we have some historical educated guesses. Yeah, but what the unnamed Tom the Tinker would do is he would send letters to tax collector sympathizers and those who paid their taxes in an official style. It would say like official memo or something. It would look like the U.S. government sent this, but it would basically be a threat of violence or something if, com if you complied with the federal government or did something to make them believe that you were not on the side of the rebels. And I say rebels because I don't know what to call these group of people that oppose the tax. I see where they're coming from. They didn't really want, they did do violent acts, but Rebels makes it sound so simple, like there's a good and a bad, you know? Yeah, it's an opposition 
between two forces, that's for sure. Occasionally, if the receiver of these letters did not listen to these letters from Tom the Tinker, their barns would be burnt, or their stills would be burnt, predominantly targeted people who did pay their taxes. What they wanted was to create a unified Western group where nobody paid any taxes, nobody did comply with the federal government at all. And those people who did pay created tension. It wasn't unity. So then people could say, You're damned if you do, and you're damned if you're not. Exactly. You're going to be burned down by the feds. You're going to be burned down by the Tom the Tinker or some of these other groups. So they essentially used force to force people to be on the side of the anti-tax movement because they were the predominant force in that area. The federal government couldn't protect their tax collectors, much less protect the stills and the barns of those who, who paid their taxes. And I want to quickly go over why they burned down barns. It's because there's no one living in it. It was a financial hit, but there was no loss of life associated with it. Well, that's at least nice. Right. So, in 1974, William Rawls, he issued a subpoena for 60 people of 60 rebels who would be forced to travel to Philadelphia to appear in a federal court, knowing full well that they could not afford to travel to Philadelphia. A few weeks later, William Finley, who was still in Congress, amended it, got it so that they could appear in state courts. Unfortunately, the marshal who was sent out was sent out. He left the area before the amendment, the change in plans by William Finley, could be carried out or given to him. So as far as the message being sent west was, that they had to appear in federal courts. Mm, okay. A lot of people think that Hamilton did this full well, knowing that it would do nothing but stir discontent. Yeah, kind of a dirty play, if you ask me. Kind of what it is exactly what it did. Later on, the attorney general told, uh, said that the Brits were only intended to enforce the West to comply and that no trials were to be held. However, no such instruction was given to the marshals. To me, this seems like I realized I made a mistake and I'm just saying it was only a joke. <laughs> it's only a joke, guys. Calm down. It's only a joke. So the Marshal Lennox served most of the warrants until he got to Allegheny County which is the same county where Neville lived. Je Neville, Neville, General Neville rode to accompany Lennox and act as a guide for his area, his backyard, his town, his county. And everything was going well until July 15th. On July 15th, the party was fired upon, upon approaching a house to collect or to hand out the, the writ, and Neville retreated back to his house, and Lennox rode all the way back to Pittsburgh. The following day, 30 members of the Mingo Creek group marched on Neville's property. Neville's property called Bower Hill, the rebels demanded that Neville turn over Lennox. Even though Lennox was gone, Neville couldn't convince the militiamen that he wasn't there. Sensing where this was inevitably going, Neville began firing on the militia, killing one man. It just went from burning down bars to killing people. That's quite an escalation. Yep, both sides exchanged gunfire. The 30 militiamen versus Neville and his slaves... And Neville had seen this coming, so he had kind of armored his house a little bit, set up defensive positions, stuff like that. So Neville and his slaves held off the militia. Well, hearing about what was going on, the next day the militia outside grew to what some people estimate to 600 men. That's a lot of firepower. A lot of men means a lot of firepower. <laughs> Don't worry. Neville got reinforced as well. The Marshal Lennox came back, as well as 10 soldiers from Pittsburgh came to help him. And Presley Neville, uh, John Neville, General John Neville's son, attempt came back to the house with Lennox, but Lennox and his son, Presley Neville, were both captured by the rebels. The 10 soldiers were able to make it into the Bower Hill house. After an hour of exchanging fire, the militia versus the 10 soldiers and Neville and his slaves, the militia stopped and called a ceasefire because they believed they had seen a white flag coming out of the house. The militia leader, who was, he was the, he was, there was no official designation, right? Because it was a group of random citizens who assembled. But he was the highest ranking military officer who had fought in the Revolutionary War. So he was the, for all intents and purposes, leader. He stepped out to negotiate a surrender, so he thought. A shot came from the house that killed McFarland. The rebels were pissed. They thought they had been lied to because they thought they'd saw the white flag. They called the ceasefire. Their leader comes out and gets shot. Yeah, uh, would presence of white flag and turns out not to be is uh, a dangerous scenario. 
and it is debated the people from inside the house say that they didn't raise a white flag so it's kind of you got to take each side's word against each other but to me it seems like something would have to be shown to get 600 people to stop shooting at your house (laughs) yeah that's a fair assessment the rebels understandably were pissed that their leader just been killed and decided to go a quicker way from trying to take the house and just started lighting the house on fire Finally, the smoke pushed the entrenched soldiers out and into the control of the rebels. The rebels let the soldiers go, but took Neville hostage along with his son and Lennox, who had already been captured. The rebels returned to Pittsburgh. And this is where the rebels thought that this was kind of the end of it. They thought that they had made a show of force and the government would just leave them alone. In the Mingo Creek Church, they're having a discussion about this, and many of the rebels were surprised that some people thought the government would come back and in greater numbers and that they would be seen as traitors. That's what I would I would guess. They thought that that was going to be the end, that the government would say, okay, they really don't like this, it was unfair, there's a show of force, we have these prisoners, even though the prisoners ended up escaping, that that was kind of the culmination, and that from there things would simmer down. Now, that's not how probably any government would treat that, but... When has America ever backed down? I, I don't know. I'm trying to think. <laughs> yeah, we're not. We're one for going off with our uh, boots on, going out with our boots on. So uh, backing down, don't really think that's in our uh, dictionary. Well, just defeated the largest military in the world and then challenged him to a, another fight just a few years later. <laughs> hold, hold my whiskey. Now that there had been actual violence between the rebels and the federal government, it was hard to keep the moderates in line. Brackenridge continued to attempt to keep the protests peaceful, but the Westerners began to seek more radical leaders. Bradford emerged as a leader. He was a lawyer who took some righteous cases. He believed land ownership belonged to those who improved the land. He was upset at large landowners, predominantly eastern landowners, who would buy large tracts of land, rent it out to people, and then once the area was improved, you know, they planted certain, like, uh, peach trees, apple trees, fruit trees, turned forests into fields, the land became more settled and safe from Indians, then they would sell that to other people and make a huge profit while doing very little of the work. So he defended Indians and squatters. He really, he was ahead of his time, right? I mean, can you imagine... A white man defending an Indian in a court of law at that time? That's definitely unheard of for that time period. Yeah, defending squatters against wealthy landowners back east. That's even rare today. Money always means power. So William Bradford was an idealist, but he could also be violent. Um, He had some of his followers rob the mail, and he went through the mail to determine who was loyal and who was against him. Bradford sent out a call to assembly, and 7,000 people gathered at Braddock's Field on August 1st of 1794. And this is where people get mixed up. And they say that the Whiskey Rebellion, like Hamilton said, was about whiskey. But many of these people were poor, did not own stills, did not would not really be affected by the tax but like issues like this do this urban rural divide mike it was about much more than just the whiskey tax it was about all those other grievances the lack of access to the mississippi the lack of protection by the federal government from these indians on on the in, the indian wars from foreign governments all this stuff unfair taxes represent taxes without representation all this stuff culminated into what seems like a semi- seemingly simple subject it's never as simple as it seems so always more complicated and things behind the curtain so the men gathered for a reason they wanted to march on pittsburgh which is the closest city many of the men saw pittsburgh as the enemy and in many accounts they referred to pittsburgh as sodom as run by heathens and that it was the area where all the monopolies live like we talked about neville who kind of had the monopoly on selling whiskey they thought that these eastern towns were creating then using the federal government to create monopolies and generate wealth for themselves at the expense of their work in their production and so they were upset because they were the enemy but they didn't really have a clear plan when they assembled some thought it was a meeting of where to go next some thought action was going to play take place there's a lot of ideas thrown around others thought they were gathering to discuss if they were going to join with france or spain which would then open up the mississippi to their use this field is where the whiskey rebellion flag came from i don't know if you're familiar with that mike I am not. It's a blue flag with an eagle on it that's got six stripes to represent the major counties involved in this rebellion. Okay. 
and had it hanging up in my college fraternity room because if there's anything more American than whiskey, it's rebellion, right? <laughs> Touche, my friend. Touche. Pittsburgh sent a delegation to the meeting. They had shown that they had banished three men from their town who were supporters of the tax and that they supported the Westerners because there's 7,000 angry people gathered on their doorstep, so best show that they're on your side. Yeah, numbers always eventually win if there's enough. Bradford led the men to Pittsburgh. At this time, their intentions were still unclear. Some called for it to burn down. Most just wanted to protest and leave. Uh, William Brackenridge, the moderate from the first convention, was trying desperately to convince people that no harm should befall the people of Pittsburgh or the town of Pittsburgh. But something unexpected happened when they arrived into Pittsburgh. This town of Sodom that they thought they were going to burn down, when they showed up, they found that the town of Pittsburgh was supporting them, and they were waving flags and providing food to these rebels. As the rebels marched through town that they had wanted to burn down, they just found support and so they kind of didn't know what to do. So they did go to a Major Kirkpatrick, who was person responsible for tax collection and partly involved at the incident at Bower Hill. He had left town, or so most people thought, and they wanted to destroy his property. William Brackenridge again ran through town urging people not to burn his house because that would spread to the next house and then the next house and eventually burn the whole town down so it wasn't worth it. It was found that Major Kirkpatrick was still in town. He was hiding in the fort. An angry mob gathered outside that fort that wanted him dead. This wasn't a mob of rebels. This was a mob of Pittsburgh residents who were upset that he would risk the town by not fleeing, knowing full well that this party was coming to get revenge for some of his actions. So Kirk, uh, Brad Brackenridge, William Brackenridge, and a few other men helped Kirkpatrick escape from not only the rebels, but also the residents of Pittsburgh. Tom the Tinker was also active in Pittsburgh, doing the same thing he did out west, putting up notices for people loyal to the tax, saying that they should support them. Out of curiosity, Nick, it seems like with Tom Taker keep popping up and people not exactly knowing who he is, it feels like it's almost a collection of people acting as one individual. That makes sense. That's kind of what I see it as well. Um, some of most of the Tom the Tinker's handwriting is all the same, but some of it is different, which would lead me to believe that it was mostly one person, but he was also copied by other people occasionally. Is kind of what I think too. So one person created the character, but other people continued it. Kind of like a Shakespeare effect almost. Exactly. So he did the same thing he did, putting up notices of against people who were loyal and people who were not, or in a sense threatening the people who were in favor of the tax. There were some kangaroo mock trials, and uh, a, there was one tax collector who was found guilty in these mock trials, and he was sentenced to tar and feathering. But instead of that, the rebels took him out into the woods and got him drunk, and they all just got drunk together. <laughs> so this wasn't the disaster that many people thought it was going to be. Of course, this is during the daytime. Once the sun went down, Kenny Chesney said that's when everything gets hotter, right? <laughs> many people had left town at this point. There's probably only 200 people, and tensions were still kind of high. Brackenridge continued to run around town convincing people not to burn anything, not to cause damage, that this wouldn't represent their movement well. And as the sun went down on the south end of town, you could start to see flames. Oh boy. The rebels had chosen not to burn anything in town, but they burned all of Major Kirkpatrick's barns leaving town. Didn't spread to any neighbors, and they decided not to burn his house down in town and instead dismantled it so that it wouldn't light any other neighbor's dwellings on fire. That is commitment. What could have been a terrible day ended up better than anyone predicted it would go. I mean, no one got hurt and the town didn't get completely set on fire. So yeah, we can chalk that up as a win. Exactly. No, there's there's no deaths. His only property was lost and only one person's property was lost. There was threatening behavior going on by Tom the Tinker and others in town. But for the most part, it was, you know, the people of Pittsburgh supported it and everyone got along. So it could have been a lot worse. I mean, like you said, those people called pittsburgh sodom and wanted to burn it all down so it's better than that <laughs> yeah yeah there is one problem with the barn burning a legal problem what's that up until this point this had been a federal issue now that the barn had been burned this turned this from a federal issue into a state issue now state militias could be called if the state wanted to and militia would be called if there was a perceived threat to the citizen. And now there's pressure from the federal government to get the state to respond to get rid of these rebels. Washington asked his Congress what he should do about all this. 
All but one person said, send a show of force. There's one person in the cabinet who said, use diplomacy to find peace. Washington decided he would do both. He sent a peace delegation west, and at the same time began raising an army. Now many people argue of what Washington's intentions are. Some people said if he truly wanted peace, why did he raise an army? Some people say that he wanted peace and that the army was just a show of force to further the cooperation. Other people say that if he wanted, if he wanted that the peace envoy was just appearances and that he was always going to send the military. And we may never know exactly, well, if we don't know by now, we're probably never going to know exactly what Washington was thinking. Some people say he just didn't want to seem cruel by just sending the military without sending a peace envoy. Either way, he began to do both. I think he was being heavily pressured by Hamilton at the time. Hamilton had always began, had always wanted a show of force. He thought that a large United States military, not state militias, would benefit the new country, and that a show of force of multiple states working together as one would actually unite the country. Now, Hamilton, like I said on the Election of 1800 episode, is kind of a snake, and this comes out here. He began to publish uh, essays under a fake name to persuade people that the Westerners were just ungrateful and that they needed to be quelled by force. Now, this guy, Hamilton, he was in the cabinet. He was famous. I don't know why he needed to publish under fake names. I guess, you know, probably wasn't an approved message sent that Washington would want sent out and attached to his presidency. That's probably what it was, but it seems subversive to me. It, I can see both sides because Benjamin Franklin obviously did it with the letters for the publication for the papers, but the agenda that Hamilton's going for is much more serious than Benjamin Franklin, so I can see it how it's a negative, a negative effect. But also Benjamin Franklin was would also be punished for those essays at the time. Hamilton's in the cabinet. He's probably not going to be punished by the government for what he puts out. Yeah, that's that's a fair argument. So another convention was held at Parkinson's Ferry at, and Mike, I practiced this for you, Monongahela. Monongahela. Was the area that this was held at. And many of the moderates attended this convention, and they were attempting to create a peace deal with Washington's representatives. Bradford, the leader of the March on Pittsburgh, continued to call for revolt. The rebels wanted their demands exceeded, or there was talk of allying with Spain, which again would open up the Mississippi for trade and make them a lot more money than they currently have if they could sell to a wider market. Transportation costs are less, open up new trading partners. Instead of being taxed more, they could make more money. This was an appealing position to many of these people, but these are Americans. We wanted to be free, as free as we could be, right? Right. Didn't want to answer to another monarchy. In the end, another convention was held, um, or would, this, this convention would then become known as the Whiskey Point Convention, and they decided they wanted to end this peacefully, continue to stay a part of the United States. So they appointed some representatives to meet with Washington's representatives. September 11th, a peace agreement was reached narrowly by the committee to submit to the federal government that the violence would be over and that all the people in the Western territories would swear an oath to the federal government, an oath of loyalty, and it had to be signed by a certain date. This army that Washington had raised traveled west mostly to ensure that the terms were met. The army marched with 12,950 men. Most of these men were drafted. Relatively few men volunteered. The act of a draft was unpopular, which led to government resistance in areas that hadn't been opposed to the whiskey tax. Now these men were being drafted to go enforce this tax that, even if they agreed with it, were they willing to die for it? Yeah, when you're forced into a situation that you didn't want to be into, laying your life on the line is, uh, well, kind of a tall order if you ask me. Yeah, and several men were actually killed resisting the draft or resist or trying to evade arrest from evading the draft. And this kind of desertion did not reflect well for the appearance of national unity on the whiskey tax. The army marched slowly westward. The officers on along the way were entertained in wealthy houses. They drank fine wine and listened to piano-playing children of the wealthy along their way. The non- officers, the drafted men, slept outside in the mud and drank whiskey and shot their rifles to pass the time when they were at camp, using powder that they were supposed to conserve. Washington headed west for most of the trip, seeing as this was an army, he wanted to inspect it. This was about the same size as the army that fought off the British. This is one of the largest forces assembled in the United States at this time. But he was old, like we said earlier. He did not enjoy riding on horses. His back hurt him. Even riding in a buggy over poor roads was painful to Washington. A cavalry group had gotten message that Washington was coming through town, 
and as such, Washington would be obligated to ride his horse at the front of the procession. Not wanting to do that, he took the buggy hours out of the way over a bumpy road so he would not have to suffer through a painful ceremonial ride. Damn, that's how you know you're really hurting. Mm-hmm. As the army marched towards them, some of the rebels became scared, but and they went to go buy purchase gunpowder for their rifles. But the rebels were not allowed to purchase powder for their rifles. So the government had told them, the government had said that you can't sell powder to these people. After Washington inspected the army, he turned around and went home, but sent word ahead that there could not be any pillaging, as that would create more division. Pretty obvious. The order was received, but the army had the men, but it hadn't been supplied where they wouldn't have to take things from the locals. There's already been pillaging. Pillaging had already been done by the time they got this order. They had been stealing goods from the locals, which created more division. Once the, ro once the order was received, the role of acquiring goods was given in the form of a requisition from the quartermaster to go out and collect goods from the population and give more government IOUs, which probably didn't go over that well either. <laughs> Once the army in Hamilton, who continued with the military, arrived in areas of resistance, the orders were carried out to apprehend the criminals. By criminals, we mean those who had not signed the loyalty oath, or those who had who there was evidence against. This could have gone better. The generals handed out orders to the officers. Then those officers gave orders to other officers to carry out the orders at their discretion. As the order got to the bottom, it got kind of muddy of where the lines were. Most of the arrests were made in the middle of the night without warrants. Men were taken from their beds and marched to a common area to be held or tried. There was no warrants issued, and they just took them straight out of bed. Many of these men marched in their pajamas, chained to the back of another man, and then sat in the mud while their cases were reviewed. Hmm... The Mingo Creek Church was hit especially hard. Hamilton was there. Many of the men were arrested, taken to a tavern, put in the back of the tavern cellar. Uncomplete tavern cellar, there were no floorboards yet. They sat them down in the mud. There was no, the insulation wasn't finished, so it was cold. They weren't fed. There was a fire in the room, but it was on the other side that only kept the soldiers warm, but not the prisoners, who had yet to be charged with anything. They wanted to do this to force confessions, to get evidence, compile something that to convict these people so that Hamilton could travel back with all the prisoners, create a huge show of force for the federal government's army. Did it work? Hamilton was furious he couldn't force more confessions. <laughs> he arrested Brackenridge, the moderate, the one who was in the first convention preaching moderacy, become, staying part of the Union, the one who kept houses from burning down, the one who helped Kirkpatrick escape, who helped Neville survive. All these things, this man who did everything right, sentenced him to hanging. What? He had been a yep. He had been a moderate this whole time. Even as others got radical and violence ensued, he continued to call for peace. He was so worried because there was no warrants issued and men were being taken in the middle of the night. He had slept in on a couch in his front room in his clothes, waiting to be taken. That day finally came. Hamilton and others walked up to his house. And Hamilton and him had a discussion. Hamilton wanted to get him to profess to certain things. And Brackenridge showed his side of the story. When he got to the part about Bradford, leader of the resistance and march on Pittsburgh, Brackenridge told of how Bradford didn't choose to be a leader, but people elected him because of things that he had done, that he was a respected member of the group, which infuriated Hamilton because he wanted to pin Bra this on Bradford so that he could take him in. But if the people chose him... It didn't show the intent that he wanted to find. And Hamilton told Brackenridge that he better, lack of a better sense of word, said, if you don't give me Bradford, you'll be charged with certain things. And Bradford said, I'm going to tell you the truth, and that's it. You can do what you want. Hey, I voted that. He continued to tell, yeah, he continued to tell his whole story. And Hamilton, once again, upset that he couldn't cite all these people, let Brackenridge go. He brought 20 prisoners back because he could not get the evidence. Furthermore, many of the rebels fled into the mountains and waited for the army to leave. Some people went down south, floated down the Mississippi and lived in other countries' territories. Others just hid out until the United States Army left. The 20 men who were prisoners who went back, most of whom weren't sentenced to much. Two were sentenced to hanging, but were later pardoned by Washington as kind of a show of unity to bring the country back together after this had been done. So everything kind of went back to normal. Now, 
The whiskey tax continued to go largely uncollected. The Westerners turned their attention from rebellion into smuggling and finding ways to not pay the tax. But they weren't in open rebellion against the government, which is what the government wanted. The fact of the matter is the income from those counties would be so low that it really wouldn't affect that much of the tax. Most of it would be paid by the large business owners. Obviously, they still, the smuggling, the people who didn't register their stills and hid their stills wouldn't be able to supply to the government, but it was more used to trade with other people. This started the whole American bootlegging operation that is so ingrained in our culture. Hamilton did get what he want, what he wanted. He expanded the federal government, created a system of tax collectors. He created, he was able to use this to create sort of an idea for an American military and why it was necessary. Later on, as we know, Jefferson won the next election, the election of 1800, and he quickly repealed the whiskey tax, seeing as an overstep of the federal government. That probably got him a lot of votes. Sure did. So that's the story of the Whiskey Rebellion, which some people say is Hamilton's last win, that he changed this whole story about Western complaints into rebellion about a simple drink, that these complaints that stem from lack of protection, lack of ability to sell goods, underrepresentation, unfair taxation, is now known for simply being Americans like whiskey and they did not like the tax on it. And they say that that was Hamilton's final win. Well... That's a bad win because in my book, he, it got overturned and reversed with Jefferson. So his win was sh short-lived. Yep. So I saw a few things in the story that may not have made sense when I was telling it, but I bring it up. They'll make sense now. The Bill of Rights was ratified not ten, less than 10 years before these events. And I saw the government violate the first. They violated the uh, right to assemble, or wanted to at least, by arresting people from the conventions. The second, by not selling powder to the rebels. The fourth and eighth, by not having a right to a fair and speedy trial and arresting people without a warrant. So that's not a good scorecard for this new government, I would say. Rough start. Rough start. Like I said, I believe at this time the ink on the Bill of Rights was still drying and those rights were already being trampled. Those rebels, that we call them, just fought for their independence and fought for this these ideas and they're already trying to be taken away by the expansion of the federal government. The, I'm happy though the freedom's still ringing, Nick. I am happy for that. Yeah. Another lesson that I saw in this, Mike, is that the failure to listen to the moderates in that first convention, they really, they gave them with the one cent reduction, kind of a handout, kind of a, here you go, didn't really address any of the other concerns. When they cast away the moderates, it allowed the radicals to rise in power. Are you trying to make a parallel to what's Matt, what's going on in today's society, Nick? Yes and no. I'm just saying, this is what happened in this story. It is true, though, the extremists tend to be the loudest voice and so maybe at the beginning when they brought their list of western grievances and they addressed not just the whiskey tax which is just the latest of the grievances if they had addressed any of those other concerns made it safer made it easier for people to transport goods instead of trying to take more of what they had maybe this wouldn't have resulted in i find it hard to call this open rebellion because it really wasn't that violent it really like there was bad things that happened yes for sure but on the scale of rebellion i mean it wasn't a revolution skirmishes people lost their lives but skirmishes whatever you want to call it just doesn't seem like it was this giant rebellion that we we think it was another lesson i thought that might be important is that the fair if the tax was fairer spread evenly through all the distillers maybe it wouldn't have been such an issue instead that this tax promoted the large distillers over the small distillers was part of the problems which then allowed the small distillers and the westerners to assign an us and them create enemies against each other saying that these people are profiting and we are being unfairly punished but if it was spread some across everyone evenly then maybe it could have you know wouldn't have been such an issue now i think it still would have been an issue because whiskey was the currency to them where it was not in the east but the fact that these bigger companies these uh, bigger distillers were allowed to generate such a revenue and then be the predominant supplier of the United States military, led to creation of kind of a monopoly, didn't sit well. 
Unequal distribution of power. Another lesson is that these laws, if a law, um, if you're not willing to enforce the law by force, right, and the people aren't willing to enforce it, maybe it shouldn't be a law. Now, I get it's important to pay taxes, but this is an unpopular out west, and people didn't want to support it back east when it cost them their lives. And is it really that important to use this to, if you have to raise an army to enforce a law, was it that good of a law in the first place? It's a fair question. If it comes to the debate of whether it's good for the people or it's not good for the people, it's just good for the few who make those laws. So that's kind of what I had, Mike, that I kind of, the themes I saw when I read through this and, and compiled this. Curious to know, what do you think about the Whiskey Rebellion? It just seems a lot of miscommunication, like not, like you said, with the moderates kind of being pushed the side of not really listening to them, of let's try to find a compromise. Not one side has to be right, one side has to be wrong, but look at the big picture and find a compromise. It just seems any idea got pushed aside, and the one cent of the nine cents was something, but it didn't address the issue, especially with the bigger breweries were able to pay off the taxes and the smaller ones not. You kind of want the smaller ones to do successful to help promote new business, more jobs, et cetera, et cetera, not make it a monopoly. It just seemed trying to push everything into a one centralized thing instead of having a bunch of smaller self-controlled environments. So I guess it was state versus federal at the end of the day. Yep, I agree. So Mike, uh, you'll like this. I want to end this one with a quote. I do love quotes. This is from Thomas Jefferson, not about the Whiskey Rebellion more about the American Revolution. I hold it that a little rebellion now and then is a good thing, and as necessary in the political world as storms in the physical. Unsuccessful rebellions indeed generally establish the encroachment on the rights of the people which have produced them. An observation of this truth should render honest Republican governors so mild in their punishment of rebellions as not to discourage them too much. It is a medicine necessary for the sound health of government. Ooh, I do like that. Sometimes it's a, it's a good thing to have your boots shake a little shake a little bit in your boots. Yep, because it shows where what the people want. And this violation or this uh, encroachment of the federal government was really not well received. And it could have been a wake-up call to Hamilton and the expansionists of the federal government about, uh, you know, that th this was an unpopular opinion, which they did, which the Federalist, Hamilton's side, did lose the next election. So... It goes to show it's uh, power for the people, by the people. Yep. And if you want to know about what happened next, Hamilton versus Jefferson, Federalist versus Anti-Federalist, I already have a podcast on that, the election of 1800. Give it a listen. <laughs> well, Nick, I want to thank you. That was very informative. And I, too, was one of the fools who thought the Whiskey Rebellion was a much more simpler topic point than it actually is and how in depth i guess it just shows on how much how simple we try to make everything and i do love that quote by jefferson that was a very good quote yep there's always more to the story isn't there thanks for listening to the backyard philosophy podcast we rarely finish a podcast without missing a point we wanted to bring up, so let us know what we forgot. And if you have a topic you want us to talk about, let us know at Backyard Philosophy on Instagram, 